Ocean Bites Out Loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you. Our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure, and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world. We hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way. Welcome. Thank you for being here today. For our audience, can you please tell us your name and your preferred pronouns? Matt and he, him. Awesome. Thank you. So, Matt, what are you currently researching? Uh, So I'm studying the impacts of ocean acidification on pteropods, which are tiny planktonic snake. So how small are we talking here? Uh, On average, they're a few millimeters um, in diameter. So they are uh, a type of zooplankton, so animal plankton. So they're they're larger than um, phytoplankton, the single-celled algae. And you can see them with your eyes, but they're quite small. Wow. So first of all, how do you collect these really, really small zooplankton, these pteropods? Uh, so we do field work out with um, the Canadian Coast Guard. Um, we go out on their big oceanographic vessels for weeks at a time. Uh, I've done a trip to the Arctic as well, which is pretty cool. Um, and we use a plankton net. So it's a really, really fine mesh net that we tow through the water and it filters out all of the plankton and then we collect that on, on deck. Wow, so you mentioned that you went all the way up to the Arctic. Can they survive in cold temperatures then? Yeah, they can. They Pteropods live uh, all throughout the ocean. There are different species some that only live in the polar regions, um, so in the Arctic and Antarctic waters. And then there are some warm water species um, that only are found in closer to the equator in the tropics. And then we have some species that sort of are more in the temperate regions like we have here. Wow, I didn't realize that they could be found all over, which is really cool. So you mentioned that you're looking at the effects of ocean acidification. How exactly do these two connect? Like, what's happening with ocean acidification, first of all, and then how is that affecting the pteropods? Sure. So ocean acidification is a process where um, excess CO2 that we have been putting into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution uh, is dissolving into seawater. So some CO2 from the atmosphere just naturally dissolves into the ocean at the air-to-sea interface. But because we're putting more CO2 in the air, a higher concentration, more of it's going into the water. And there's a chemical reaction that occurs where um, essentially an acid is formed. So it um, slowly reduces the pH. If you think back to your like grade chemistry class, the pH scale, the, the lower you go on the scale, the more acidic, the higher you go, the more basic. So we're lowering the pH of the ocean by putting that extra CO2 in there. And that can have implications for, um, for in a variety of biological ways, but one of them is animals that build shells or skeletons out of calcium carbonate, um, or essentially chalk or limestone, that's what that's made of, um, because it can dissolve quite easily if the pH is, is reduced too much. Um, and it can also be harder to form those shells or skeletons under a lower pH. So 
The link to pteropods is that they are one of the very few planktonic organisms that actually build a shell out of calcium carbonate. Um, and plankton is important for the food web, right? It's one of the base or levels of the food chain. And pteropods specifically make a shell out of a specific type of calcium carbonate called aragonite. So it's the same um, molecule, but it's a different crystal arrangement, and it actually makes it more easily dissolved or more soluble than calcite, which is what most things like clams, oysters um, are made out of. So because of those two things, the plankton are important and their shells are potentially quite easily dissolved or more vulnerable than other shells, uh, we look at them as sort of a, a bio-indicator um, species for the effects of ocean acidification. Wow, that is really cool. So. Essentially, these pteropods are providing a way for you to look at how fast ocean acidification is happening. And by looking at maybe their abundance, you're able to see, okay, what are some other effects this might have on the food web? Yeah, there's a lot to that. Um, there's a lot of nuance because it's very difficult to tease out the effects of ocean acidification on, say, their abundance or population. Um, from the effects of many other things. You have just uh, other climate change um, effects like warming and shifting um, food availability and things like that, but also just uh, we have natural um, El Nino, La Nina cycles, temperature cycles in the ocean. Um, there's many, many factors, so it's actually quite challenging. And I wouldn't say that we're there yet in terms of um, attributing a, like a decline in their population to ocean acidification yet. Um, we're sort of at the level of just like really trying to prove that it, if it affects them or not. Um, by looking at uh, their shells is one, one way to do it. Other people look at their uh, sort of survival rates in, in experiment trials and labs, or um, some people get at it through um, DNA, barcoding, and genetic sort of um, effects as well. So, yeah, the, the abundance thing is, is tricky just because it is so naturally there. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot to dig into there. Have you made any surprising discoveries that you're willing to share with us throughout your, your degree? Sure, yeah. Um, I did a, a small experiment that sort of popped into my head um, when I was reading some of the literature. Um, about this organic layer that they have on the outside of their shells. It's called a, a periostracum. It's made of proteins. And it's most, uh, well, all shelled mollusks have a periostracum because they make it before they make their shell. Um, and they actually secrete the shell essentially onto the periostracum. It sort of acts like the scaffolding for the shell to form. Um, and another species of mollusks, uh, it's quite known that that periostracum can protect the shell from being dissolved by more acidic conditions. But for pteropods, um, because the, their, their periostracum is so thin that you can't even see it, even with like scanning electron microscopy, it's almost impossible to like see that it's there. I would just know that it's there from their essentially mollusk physiology. Um, but it had been assumed to not protect them at all because it's so thin. There was a couple of studies that tried to sort of get at that, and one one that, sh uh, that suggested that it did protect them. Um, there was some debate that followed that paper as well. So I kind of thought, what if I could 
specifically test that somehow. So I went out on a research cruise and collected a bunch of pteropods um, from the west coast of Vancouver Island, and I held them in place under a microscope. And this was extremely challenging because these things are like two, three millimeters across, and their their shells are only like seven microns thick. They're they're super fragile. So I had to hold them with a fine tip paintbrush so that I didn't break them. And looking through the microscope, I very gently scratched with a very, very fine dissecting needle one small little patch of their shell in a specific area that I knew where I had done it. Um, and then I incubated these uh, these pteropods in sort of more acidic water and less acidic water to see if their shells dissolved. And I looked at them afterwards with a microscope and, and scanning electron microscope and found that the areas where I had essentially damaged that peristratum layer, the shell dissolved below there, whereas other areas where I didn't intentionally damage the peristratum, the shell remained um, very pristine, even in the acidic um, water treatment. So that finding really shows pretty strongly that that peristratum does have a protective effect, which is new, sort of, you know, it's a, it's a more... Um, confident uh, analysis than what's been done before, and that is in review right now, hoping to be published quite soon. So that that makes up the first chapter of my thesis. Wow, that is really exciting, especially when you know there wasn't a whole lot of information on it to start with. It sounds like, and I'm wondering how did you come up with the idea of holding it with a, a paintbrush? I mean, I get they're fragile, but you just went to the art store and it's like I need this for research. I did just buy it from an art store. I, it was the finest tipped paintbrush I could buy at the store. Um, but that was a suggestion from a, a colleague who's also worked on pteropods. And she uses it to just sort of pick up the empty shells once they're dried and preserved and kind of move them around. Um, if you get it wet, you can sort of they stick to the shell, to the paintbrush. So that was that, uh, that tip, yeah. Wow, the things we do for research. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm also curious... What have you researched in the past? Like, how did you get to where you are in a PhD doing research on these really, really tiny snails? In my undergrad, which was at Vancouver Island University, I did a Bachelor of Science in Fisheries and Aquaculture, which was a really cool program. And I got, um, uh, I got involved through um, a summer research job um, with the uh, Pacific Biological Station which is a fish, fisheries and oceans research station. And I was working with a grad student doing her master's on an idea of potentially using growing oysters on all around salmon farms to try to reduce the sea lice because they would filter feed on them. So I was just a sort of a research assistant and um, that was my first time actually like working on, on a research project. And uh, that really set the stage for me. That's sort of when I knew I wanted to go to grad school and do something like that. Um, and then I got involved with a research lab on campus for the next few summers, um, working as a research assistant. And they did more uh, like intertidal biodiversity and ecology. Um, but we also added some microplastics work into that. Um, and I ended up doing my um, honors project on the uh, on microplastics in um, farmed oysters from Vancouver Island. Wow, so it seems like quite the journey. Did the oyster farming work with the sea lice, and were you able to find anything that indicated oysters would be able to help with microplastics pollution? Um, so two separate things. So the oysters at the salmon farms, 
Um, I think the end result of that project was that they could potentially have a significant effect on reducing sea ice populations in salmon farms, but you would have to have way more oysters than what, than what we had. Um, you have to have essentially a wall that's just like hanging oysters, like this thick gauntlet of oysters that the sea lice larvae have to swim through all around the salmon farm. And I think at that density, it might reduce the water flow into the salmon farm pens um, enough to maybe impact oxygen on for them. So I don't know if it really was, uh, I would say, like this revolutionary, you know, new idea but or success, but uh, it was definitely an interesting project to try and work on. The oysters uh, with microplastics, we weren't really looking at it from, like, how can they reduce microplastics or help? I was just looking at the content. Um, in two in two different forms of growing oysters, and did they differ? Um, there was a few other people working on other sort of pieces of that project, but we ultimately found that um, oysters around Vancouver Island, um, on average, contain one microplastic fiber per oyster, um, and that that concentration is actually quite low compared to what's been reported in other parts of the world. Um, so sort of a good you know result, but. Uh, we weren't looking uh, at the extremely, really small end of the microplastics um, spectrum. That field has really progressed in the last few years to get down to um, almost like, like nanoplastic scale. That uh, We were looking, I think the lowest that we could really detect was um, a 0.1 of a millimeter long. Um, and that's even that's really tough to, to detect. Yeah. Wow. All this is really interesting stuff. And it sounds like a lot of the skills that you've gotten throughout these experiences have helped you with your PhD? Yeah, they definitely have. Um, and they sort of taught me really what grad school is all about, sort of the path that you can take in academia. Um, and that sort of leads into like this, uh, this sort of question that you asked me earlier about the challenges that I might have faced in, in my sort of journey really is just that I didn't know anything about academia when I started my undergrad. I, I'm a first-generation academic, so no one in my family before me had gone to university. I just sort of had to learn that whole process as I went, and I sort of uh, luckily had really good um, professors and mentors that sort of helped me along the way, and getting those really awesome research jobs working with grad students, that really, really helped because I saw what they were doing, the process, you know, talked to them about it, um, got advice and things. I sort of just rolled with the punches, and uh, ultimately I did want to do a, a master's or PhD on microplastics, but at the time I just couldn't really find a, a research group that was taking on students in that field, and I ended up finding um, this project here on ocean acidification and pteropods, which I had already heard about because I did a project in my undergrad, like a presentation on on that topic, and, and thought it was cool, so I, uh, I said yes, and here I am like five <laughs> years later. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about maybe what your experience has been like being a first generation college student, university student, grad student? Like a lot of the time, I think people who end up going on to grad degrees have had a parent who generally has also had a grad degree or, you know, has talked about it or has friends or it's had a significant impact on their lives. So what was it like for you, I guess, starting an undergrad how did you find those supports that I'm sure you had to really seek out and try to find those supports? So how did that experience, I guess, shape you as a person, as a researcher, and 
just in general? I think that not having any prior knowledge about academia or grad school, so you know, that first generation kind of slight disadvantage or whatever, it just meant that I had to go through this process later in life, I think. If I had started, if I went to university right out of high school, there's no, I don't think there's any way that I would have probably done as well as I did and gone to grad school. Um, people who do have academics in their family or have friends or, you know, have some experience, they might sort of know what they need to do uh, kind of to get to that point early. Um, if they had started, say, right after high school or a few year off or something. But I ended up taking five years off after high school to save up money to pay for my university and also to decide what I wanted to do because I didn't want to waste my money on something that I didn't stick with. But I think that that uh, really helped because I, I matured a lot in those five years. And when I was going, I was paying my own way and I was very dedicated. I didn't want to you know, waste my money essentially and skip class and do poorly and stuff. And I also saw the value in trying hard because there was a lot of scholarships available for sort of those top students. And so I worked really hard and was able to get some of those. So that really helped. And so I think by not by not knowing much about the process prior and being forced to sort of wait a little bit later in life actually had a huge benefit for me in terms of just my, my success. Yeah, that's a really valuable perspective because I think at least in the U.S. and I'm sure most of Canada too, there's a lot of emphasis placed on going directly from high school into college and then maybe there's other factors that are happening. People aren't ready. There's a lot going on with life and trying to find your own way and pave your own path. And by just going straight on, a lot of that is lost, I think. So it's really valuable to have that perspective and realize that, you know, it's not something that you have to do regardless of what people tell you. Yeah. And, and I don't think that it's ever too late, really, to, you know, whether to start an undergrad or to, if you take some time off after, to go to grad school or something. We need more perspectives like that in academia because a lot of the time it's, you know, one perspective, like going straight on, going to do this, 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 you know, keeping on directly afterward. But having that break from academia sometimes helps you change your perspective. Also, you know, of course, it's, partially about meeting the right people at the right time, but then you also pursued those opportunities as well. So was it difficult for you to, I don't know, once you met those people, reach out to them? And how did it feel, you know, starting maybe a new experience for the first time? The way that I got my um, place at UVic as a grad student, my project and everything, my supervisor, is that the, um, the researcher that I was working for in my undergrad um, was actually supervised by my current supervisor um, in their PhD. So uh, that's that was the connection. Um, I had never met my supervisor personally, but I had worked with grad students who had been supervised by him, and um, and my old supervisor really spoke highly of him. So I uh, I just reached out, just sent an email, and that's really how you you find a grad program is or a project is you, you just look at different universities that you might want to go to, um, you have an idea of what you want to work on, and you look at the lab web pages that um, the people, professors who are doing that type of research, and you just email them. It's a cold email. It feels awkward. It feels weird. Um, and you send a lot of them, and a lot of times you don't ever get a response because these profs get a lot of these cold cold emails. 
Um, sometimes they do reply and say, sorry, I don't have a spot or whatever, but you just have to sort of be persistent um, and really keep at it. Uh, I thankfully didn't have to send too, too many. That, that personal connection really helped. Um, and, and I ended up going with that option. But I did send quite a few emails to some other universities and stuff. And, um, only got a few responses that said, sorry, we're not taking those students. So it can be challenging. My advice for it would just be to start really early. Um, like if you're wanting to go to do a master's right after your undergrad, that basically in your entire last year of your undergrad, you're going to want to be like looking at those options and sending some of those emails. I know it's tough to do on top of everything, but um, you don't want to leave it too late because there's deadlines for uh, registration in universities, there's deadlines for scholarships, and a lot of these researchers sometimes require you to, to you know, apply for those scholarships, or at least even sometimes to have a scholarship um, to take you on. So, yeah, early is better. Yeah, that is really great advice. I mean, in my opinion, it always takes longer than it should, but it's really good to be prepared and start early, like you said. Kind of taking all of this into account, research is a lot of work, and I'm curious, what motivates you to do research and keep going? It's part of just discovering new knowledge, which there's some excitement there. Getting to do really cool work that, um, you know, whether it's some field work or lab work or just thinking about these ideas and these problems and how to solve them. And, um, it is a lot of problem solving. And so you're, you know, it can be challenging, but it's very, uh, it's, it's a, your head a lot um, just sort of being on like a forefront of discovery is, is just that excitement it's partly what keeps me going um, you know in some way knowing that I'm, I'm potentially you know, doing something positive for the world like creating some knowledge that might affect some positive change uh, in the environment or society um, you know, that's part of the inspiration of why I actually like went to school in the first place is uh, in, in environmental sort of sciences that I, I wanted to be able to look back on my career and when I you know in the future when I retire and sort of just be satisfied that I I didn't like sell out to the man and just you know I did something positive for the world and that I also have some lasting legacy in terms of maybe it's publications or some some policy that I've helped to you know affect or, or um, some environmental uh, difference that I've made just to know that is kind of what keeps me going. That is awesome. And I mean, it is super important to be really excited about that, which you are. And I think that also makes it maybe a little bit easier on the days that it's kind of tough because, you know, there are good days and bad days in research. But having that excitement, that need for discovery, that curiosity and that that drive to make the world a better place, I think is really important. But along those lines, I will add that sometimes uh, in in academia or grad school, it can feel like a very slow process. Um, you know, just as an example, this one first chapter of my thesis, the the, the Harry Strachan experiment, that took that's like I, that experiment was done three years ago, and it it's, it went through almost a year of review with a different journal before it was rejected to go to a new journal. It's a crazy long process to get one small piece of knowledge published. So sometimes it can feel very slow, like you're not really making a difference. And I've definitely felt like that. I think if you do, if you sort of are feeling that way, um, for me, what what's helped is I've found sort of something outside of my research that 
that I feel like I can be helping to make change in a faster way. Um, and so, you know, if you have any sort of extracurricular um, passions or activities or whatever groups you can get involved with them, like environmental groups, um, you know, I've particularly been working with the Surfrider Foundation um, for years now that uh, mainly focuses on the issue of plastic pollution. And that interest came from being researching microplastics originally. Um, so working towards helping to reduce plastic pollution and, and um, trying to uh, you know, pressure institutions or governments or whatever to uh, enact policy to make real change and putting effort into that on the side. It also, you, you've got to be careful that you don't burn yourself out when you try to do too much. But I think for me, having that on the side really kept, kept that fire alive, kept me going. That is awesome. And we'll put a link to the Surfrider Foundation in the show notes. So definitely be sure to check it out. So you have a really big passion for the ocean. And I'm wondering, is there any particular moment that you realized that this is what I want to do with my life? Or was it kind of like a slow uh, journey that you had throughout you know, the experiences that you've had in undergrad and being a research assistant? There's uh, definitely like a, a few memories um, from my childhood. And one of them was a field trip when I was in elementary school, really young, to the Pacific Biological Station in Nanaimo, and they gave us sort of behind-the-scenes tour, and they were dissecting um, dogfish, like, like, you know, sharks, and we saw fish in tanks that they were culturing for experiments and things, and got to go on one of the ships and have a walkthrough, and that was really cool. I thought, wow, like, that would be a really cool place to work, um, but I didn't really think too much of it um, until quite later, and uh, also, um, I grew up fishing with my dad and just off and I'm all going out salmon fishing. So being on the water, uh, I really liked that. I remember seeing a massive, I think now that I think back, it was probably a six scale shark that had washed up. But at the time we thought it was like a, a great white shark. It was, it was dead and floating in the water and we, uh, it was bigger than me when I was a kid. And I was like, that, that memory is, is stuck in my head. So, uh, and then I also really enjoyed biology high school in science class and I had some really good um, teachers and so that kind of all contributed to it but uh, it really took me the five years after high school to finally make the decision to go into that um, that field and I uh, found the program just through the IU website and it's like you know there was a picture of a, a guy holding a fish on a beach and I was like I could be that guy <laughs> Well, I mean, you are that guy now, so <laughs> there you go. I think it worked. Holding a pteropod instead of a fish, but... <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering what a normal day looks like for you as a researcher, both in the lab, maybe doing analysis, and also in the field when you have been on a research cruise before. In this later stage of my, my PhD, our, our friends at the computer uh, at my desk, sadly, um, I did all of my field work in my first couple of years. Um, in that two years, I spent cumulatively six months at sea. So a quarter of my time for two years was on a ship. Um, and it was amazing. I wish that I could you know, go back out and, and everything, but I just I have enough samples, enough data. So it's mostly just um, doing uh, various like, statistical analysis of the data, Exploring it, um, how to how to visualize it, how to get a result out of it, or show, you know how to show what what the data is trying to tell you, and then um, writing is a big portion of it as well. So writing uh, that first chapter, I'm you know on my second chapter, and, and doing some data work on my third chapter, and um, 
you have a lot on the go. So there's switching back and forth between projects. Um, you have to be able to like multitask and that might not be my best skill, but, and, uh, yeah, I and mean, there was some lab work, you know, interspersed with that as well. Yeah. It sounds like you have a lot on your plate. Like, Honestly, I don't know how people multitask either. I am so bad at it, but apparently it's a skill that people build up over time. So I just haven't gotten there yet. I don't think I have either. <laughs> I'm sure you'll get there by the end of your PhD. I think it's a requirement or something. <laughs> what is something that you're excited about for the future? You said you're done with your field work and research cruises and you're working on analysis, but what's something that you're looking forward to, even if it's just getting your degree? I'm looking forward to getting a job after. You know, being a grad student has a lot of challenges that comes with it, um, mentally, but also financially. Uh, it's a long time to be, you know, under them, not essentially paid like a salary uh, level job and just, you know, a government or industry level pay. Um, grad students do get a stipend, but Victoria is like one of the most expensive places to live out here. So it's challenging. So um, getting a job where you're compensated uh, fairly for your skills and the work that you're putting in um, is very exciting. And also moving on to just something different. Um, you know, five years is a long time to be thinking about this, you know, one species of tiny snail in the ocean and uh, the effects of ocean acidification on them. Not that I want to completely move away from ocean acidification work or even maybe pteropods specifically, but just uh, sort of new, something new. And um, I'm really excited to sort of see where that, that takes me. Yeah, it is an exciting time for sure. Do you have any place that you're thinking about working or someplace you've had your eye on if you're comfortable sharing? There's still a lot of uh, options floating around there. Yeah, I haven't really narrowed it down to one. Um, so I'll be just applying for various places and various positions when I finish. Um, you know, potentially I think I want to take a break from academia for a while at least. Um, I do really love teaching. I, I, I've been TAing a course here most years for my um, graduate degree and I really enjoy working with the students. And um, so I think maybe down the road, uh, that could be a, an option for me, maybe like an assistant professorship or something like that. But um, I think for a while, I just want to um, go outside of academia and get a job in research, whether it's government or like private um, industry or something like that. Yeah, and there are a ton of options out there and more are popping up every day, especially with our current climate situation. We're going to need more people out there trying to make a difference. Yeah, exactly. And um, it seems like more funding is, you know, coming down through various governments or organizations to fund uh, those types of research positions just because we do see the need for it with the you know, climate crisis and everything. Yeah, so hopefully that funding will have reached the appropriate agencies by the time you are looking for your, your jobs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think we're going to start wrapping it up. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners that you would like to tell us? I guess one piece of advice about if you're thinking about going to grad school is, um, or if you're thinking of uh, doing a PhD, is to just be very cognizant of uh, the amount of time that it realistically takes. It always takes longer than you think. Um, and 
because it takes so long, you really have to care about what you're researching. You have to have passion. So don't just take, you know, any old project just because it's there. It might be an easy choice. Um, you will probably burn out, you know, after a couple of years or a few years of studying that. So um, find a project that you have passion for. Ideally, find a lab group that is very supportive. And you can do that through, um, if you identify a, a supervisor, try to get contacts of some of their grad students. Um, we email them and ask sort of to make sure you get yeah, sort of a supportive um, supervisors is game changing really. Um, and then a fun fact, um, I guess I didn't end up talking about pteropods too much in this interview. So pteropods, uh, they, their name um, comes from the Greek taro, meaning wing, and you can think of like pterodactyl, same thing. <laughs> and then pod means foot or poda is foot. So they're a wing foot. And so most snails have a foot that they you know crawl on. This foot has been modified into two wing-like appendages over evolutionary time, and they flap those wings like little butterflies in the ocean, which is why their common name is sea butterflies. Wow. I feel like I just learned so much in the space of like 30 seconds. <laughs> so thank you again so much for that amazing advice and that really fun, fun fact. Uh, we're wishing you the best for the future, and once again, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Ocean Bites Out Loud is supported by CFUV 101.9 FM at the University of Victoria and the Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island. 